that controlled chaos was Miss Donna's favorite. And for me, I was getting hives. It's like, oh, there's paper flying everywhere, scissors being tossed around, staplers going back and forth. Everyone's attention is every which way. I'm getting hives from that, but she loves, she loves the chaos. So good for Miss Donna, but thank you for allowing us to be more orderly up here as adults and, uh, and, and handle things the way we do. Hey, this morning we are going to be in a strange sort of chapter of our Bible. At least it feels strange because it's today of all days, right? It's, it's the day we typically celebrate as Palm Sunday. It's a day that we, we uh, read this passage the week before Easter, not months before Easter in the middle of, or at the end of January. But, but we're doing it very, for a very specific reason. Mark has placed this passage at the place he has in the book of uh, Mark for a very important reason, that we would come to know who Jesus was, something very special about Jesus. So up to now in the, in the book of Mark, we've been reading these stories about Jesus. We've been learning about the way of Jesus, what sort of authority he has, what sort of power he has to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to, to kind of guide people along the way, to declare that the kingdom of God is, is here and now. But, but he's been keeping something sort of quiet along the way as well. See, the, the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem reveals something very unique, something that we didn't yet see so publicly as we do when Jesus rides in on the colt. Now, for those of you who have read this passage before, you've heard it preached many times, I, I want to encourage you to listen more closely, to pay attention to something. Our text today has something to say to us about what it means to be a follower of Christ. See, when we talk about accepting Jesus as our Savior, we're also called to accept him as, as our Lord and King. Now, if you've decided that Jesus is your Savior, but you're not necessarily comfortable making him the highest authority in your life, if you're not really willing to give over all decision-making, all responsibility to, to the, the authority in your life, well, then you haven't really accepted the Jesus of your Bible as your Savior. Hear, hear me when I say this. We, we celebrate trusting in Jesus as our Savior, but I'm not sure if we're actually trusting in the Jesus of the Bible as our Savior, if we're willing to say yes to him dying for us, but not sure if we want to really trust him to be obedient to him in every area of our life all the time. So I think in those cases, what we've really done is created our own image of a Savior. We've kind of created our own God. We've, we've created our own, what it means to, uh, to have him as, as one who has authority over you. In fact, I, I think what we'll come to see is that we, we don't even necessarily love that, that he has authority over us all the time. We like to kind of hold back some places of authority in our lives to, to kind of feel like we have a say in what's right and what's wrong. But when Jesus invites us as his disciples to, to take up our cross and to follow him, he's actually inviting us not just to accept what he's done on our behalf, but to submit to him, to, to kind of submit to what he says is right and wrong, to, 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 to follow him in obedience, to recognize that what he teaches it's not just a matter of right and wrong. It's good and, and, and right for us in, in the lives that he's called us to. In other words, he invites us to submit to and trust his authority as a king. 
So I know we've, we've read this passage we're going to read uh, many times. I, I kind of revealed a little bit about where we're going today when we were talking to the kids. It's, it's a story of what we traditionally call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But I want to encourage you, as we read through this passage and see what Jesus is revealing about himself, to maybe let your heart be softened. To ask the question, Jesus, where are you calling me to give you more authority in my life, more responsibility, more power over the direction of my life and the choices I make and the things I say and do, to trust him as our highest authority. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses of the passage of the chapter for us. Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. Follow along as I read it for us. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our, our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for sending your son Jesus, that we might know you, that we might understand who you are and, and what you came to do, to, to understand that you love us, and to understand that that love is secure through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your word this morning would move in our hearts. It would reveal to us who you are. And as a result, Lord, we might learn to trust you more to depend upon you and to follow you more closely. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage has a little bit of everything in it. It, it, it has the, 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 the fulfillment of, of prophecy. It, it has the, the, the possible miraculous foreknowledge of, of a donkey tied up, a colt, the, the foal of a donkey tied up in the village. It has the historical account of, of the beginning of Jesus' last week on this earth before his crucifixion. But what I want us to pay attention to most today is what it reveals to us about Jesus himself. As I maybe alluded to before, up to this point in the book of Mark, when something amazing or miraculous happened, Jesus does something very interesting. He commands the people that he's healed or cast out demons from, or he even commands the demons themselves not to tell anyone who he is and what he's done. In chapter 1, when, when Jesus comes upon a, an unclean man in the temple, the, Jesus, or the demons that are possessing this man start shouting out to Jesus, 
they, 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 start, they recognize him, start shouting out to him as Jesus, the son of God. And yet Jesus tells these demons to be silent, to come out of this man and be silent. Shut your mouth, he says, right? Later on, Mark tells us that, that many demons recognize Jesus, but Jesus doesn't permit them to speak because they knew him. There's a, a, a beautiful moment in, in Jesus' life in which Mark records in chapter 5 where, where the ruler, uh, a ruler of the synagogue, his daughter is dying, and he comes to Jesus and asks for help. He says, save my daughter. And there's this sweet moment uh, down in verse 41 to 43 where Jesus gently raises her to life again after she had died. Uh, look at what Mark records. He says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be a very hard thing to obey, wouldn't it? Like someone, someone you love, you dearly love, your 12-year-old daughter is raised to life in your presence, and then you're told to not tell anyone? Does that seem rational to you? Especially for, for Jesus, who came to seek and to save the lost, but then they're not allowed to tell other people about who Jesus is and what he's able to accomplish. It almost seems counterintuitive. But it's not counterintuitive. There's a plan. Jesus, of course, has a plan. This is what some scholars call the messianic secret. And it's a theme you see throughout the book of Mark. I mean, you see it throughout the Gospels, but specific theme throughout the, the, the book of Mark. And it's this, this theme where people are, are seeing Jesus. They're seeing what he can accomplish. But Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. In other words, we got to keep this a secret for a while. For the first 10 chapters of the book of Mark, Jesus has been strictly charging everyone not to reveal the secret of who he is and what he has authority over until now, until we get to chapter 11, until Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt. And so these first 11 verses of Mark are actually a historical account of Jesus' very first very public revealing of who he is and what he has come to do. So when he arrives here at the Mount of Olives in Bethphage, outside of Bethany, it's really, it's the beginning of the end of Jesus' road to Jerusalem. So I think this is a significant moment we sometimes gloss over. Before we even get to the donkey, before we even get to riding into town, riding into Jerusalem, there's this very significant moment that Mark tells us when he arrives at the Mount of Olives in Bethphage. More than just a geographical spot on the map, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, and he's showing the world who he is. The, the prophet Zechariah looks forward to this day. He, he looks forward to the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He, he kind of forecasts, he looks ahead and says, I can't wait for this day, the day of the Lord, the, the coming of the Messiah. And he, he writes, and on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. See, what I, I think we're, we're invited to consider from the very beginning of our passage is that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem 
reveals that he's the Messiah. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that, that he's the Messiah? What does it mean that, that he's the one we've been waiting for? What does it mean that, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a colt that's been tied up and never been ridden before? Or what does it mean that his disciples lay their cloaks on the colt for Jesus to sit on? What does it mean that, that people lay their cloaks out on the road in front of him? What does it mean that, that, that people are waving branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? See, all of these different ingredients add up to something. They tell us something about who Jesus is. And that story, what they add up to is that Jesus, our Messiah, is also our king. And not just any king, but a victorious king. He's a king who will accomplish what he has come to do. Take example for the cult. In those days, when a, a conquering king had, had, had won a victory, he would ride into a, a, a village or a city or, or whatever uh, on a horse. They would ride in victoriously. It was symbolic as they rode in. They'd say, you have been conquered. We're riding in. And then they would plunder the village or they'd plunder the city. But not Jesus. Not only does he choose to not ride on a horse, but when he does choose to ride in on something, it's a cult. And not only is it a cult that he will not plunder, but a cult that he has promised to return after he's used it immediately. So there's a hint here, church. Jesus is not some sort of king like we might expect a king to be. He's not the Messiah as we would envision him to be if we were writing a script in Hollywood. See, though Jesus would ride into Jerusalem victoriously, he rides in on a colt. The colt would, would symbolize in that day when they'd see the colt, they'd, they'd realize that there's a message being told, a message that he comes in peace and gentleness. He comes with an air of humility as he rides into the, the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah records a prophecy of the coming Messiah in Zechariah 9.9 that says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and ha having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, G Jesus is making it clear, not just in fulfilling the prophecy written about him many years before, but when he's talking about what kind of king he is, he makes it clear that he's the kind of king and Messiah who doesn't enter into Jerusalem in power and trumpeting his authority. He enters humble, sitting on a colt, declaring peace and victory, but a, a, a victory that would come in an unusual way. See, for the, for the people's part, they, they recognized something of what Jesus was saying, even if they misunderstood him, right? They're throwing their cloaks down on the street. You know the, what this means? They're paying homage to him. They're recognizing that this is not just some uh, pilgrim who's, who's journeying to Jerusalem. Most pilgrims, by the way, they walked into Jerusalem. And, and honestly, as you read through the Gospels, you'll notice Jesus never rides on anything. He walks. And yet here in this moment, he rides into Jerusalem on a colt 
And the people recognized that there's something special and unique going on. Throwing their, their cloaks down on the ground was meant to, to show a sign of, of, of awe and respect. Waving branches, waving branches wasn't just, you know, throwing confetti at a, a, a football team that you love to follow. Waving branches was a symbol of recognizing victory. It was a, a chance to celebrate, here comes Jesus, here comes the Messiah, he's gonna, he's gonna win us a victory. And that's what those branches meant as they, they waved them in the, in the air. I read of one particular celebration that the, the people of Israel, uh, when, when they defeated their enemy and they're able to walk back into Jerusalem, they, they parade into Jerusalem waving these branches, symbolizing their victory over their enemy. Well, Mark also tells us that, that the people aren't just throwing their cloaks down and waving branches. They're, they're shouting something. They're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna literally means save us now. But it's not like, it wasn't like a cry, like SOS. It was the sort of thing that the people of Israel cried out in, in praise and celebration of who God was. It was sung uh, at all of the, the festivals of, of the people as they gathered like Passover. It was sung in people's homes. It was a part of the Hallel, which is uh, found in, in a, a series of psalms from like Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And it was something that the, the people were familiar with singing praising God. They were praising this man riding on a colt coming into Jerusalem. They recognized something about who Jesus was. They were expecting a victory from him. They just had the, the wrong victory in mind. See, the, the paradox of Jesus, is he's, he's a different kind of Messiah, a different king than our human minds come to expect. Now, I don't think anyone can fault the crowds that gather outside of Jerusalem from, from wanting a, a political leader to, to conquer the, the Roman oppressors that have been kind of making life miserable for them. I don't think anyone could blame them for wanting better circumstances or for wanting a king and a Messiah to, to come and, and impact their life in such a way that their circumstances were better. I'd probably want the same. In fact, I do want the same thing. I know when I hit a rough patch, I'm kind of saying, Jesus, can you, can you please can you just help me out here? Just, you know, make my car start, right? Or you know what, Lord, just make my coworker sick today so I don't have to see them and deal with them, right? We want Jesus to, to be that Messiah, that king who steps in and, and makes our circumstances better for us. You see, what the, what the people wanted and what the people needed in the depth of their soul were two different things. And I think this is part of the reason why Jesus kept his identity as the Messiah a secret for so long. See, I think it's easy to miss the meaning of the Messiah if our expectations are out of alignment with God's truth and his promises. Sure, Jesus probably didn't want to encourage the crowds to, to seek after him just because of the miracles he could perform. And that happened Right? When, when people heard that Jesus could heal the sick and, and cast out demons, people sought him out. Right? It, it, it's recorded from the very beginning of the book of Mark in the, cha in the first chapter. But he probably, I mean, that's, that's probably not why he kept it a, a secret. I mean, he, certainly he didn't want the crowds to seek him out for what he could do for them. But, but I, think, I think it's more likely that he intentionally kept his identity 
as the Messiah a secret for so long because he wanted people to know him more intimately. He wanted people to understand his heart, to come to know what his purpose was, why God had sent him forth. He wanted people to spend time with him, to get to know him and understand the whole mission for which he was here. See, the difference in knowledge here is what we can know about him by a quick glance versus what we can understand about him from a long gaze. Consider this picture of of some Marines raising the U.S. flag on Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima. This is from World War II. It's a famous photograph, right? All right, take the image down for a moment. Now, let me ask you something. Can we, can we take the image down for a second? Because I don't want, I don't want to reveal my secret yet. Thank you. Let me, let me ask you something about this, because in that short amount of time that I gave you to glance at the photo, how many Marines were, were in that picture? Okay. Well, yeah, some of us know the answer over here. There was more than three or four. There were six. How, how many of those Marines survived the Battle of Iwo Jima? Anyone know? How, how, about, how about how many uh, Marines had their hands on the actual staff? Were there any officers in the picture? There, there were five Marines that were trying to raise a flag. One of them was actually, was actually supporting the other Marines as they were raising the flagpole up. There's a lot that we can... Go ahead and you can, you can put the picture back up, please. There's a lot that you can see and know if we took the time to gaze upon this photo. If we stared at it for a while. Maybe we did a little bit of research about it. Maybe we kind of explored what we can know about the Marines that were there that day. If you look closely, there's a lot more detail that you can notice about this picture. All right, you can, you can take the image back down again. See, Jesus is the kind of king we need to gaze upon and pay attention to because he's not like any king that we might experience. He's not like any human authority we would uh, come across uh, on this earth. He wants us to know him. He wants us to understand his heart. He wants to have a, uh, us to have a deeper understanding of what he came to do. See, we, we, I know we, we call it a messianic secret, but it's not really a secret because ultimately Jesus wants us to know who he is and what he's come to accomplish. In fact, it was his intention all along that we would know these things. In Mark 4.22, Jesus says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except except to come to light. He's saying, if I've kept it a secret, it it means I'm going to bring it to light. The only reason why I would hide it from you is to make it manifest at a later time. Jesus wants to reveal who he is and what he has come to do. But I think he wanted to reveal these things to his disciples over time so they would truly know him. So they would understand who he is and what he has come to do. That they would not just get swept up in the emotions of the arrival of the Messiah, right? If you've been, if you've been waiting for this moment all along and all of a sudden it comes, you're excited, Right? You, you tend to not notice the details because you're just caught up in the emotion, the excitement of what's going on. But Jesus knows this. And he knows that he wants his people to understand why he's come. Time and time again in these first 10 chapters, Jesus' disciples don't seem to understand what's going on, right? To the point where Jesus almost seems annoyed with them. At one point, when Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and die, Peter rebukes him, right? 
What does, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Right? I mean, he's, he's kind of almost annoyed by the fact that, 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 that his disciples aren't getting it. At one point he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear. And one of the things that Jesus' disciples struggled with the most was the mission that Jesus had been given to accomplish. I kind of mentioned, I don't fault Peter for, for saying, no, Jesus, you, you, you're not, you're not going to be killed. We'll never let that happen. It makes sense. You'd want to defend this guy that you love so much, you care for. But Jesus cares about us understanding who he is and what he's come to do. I think this is, this is the key to understanding the messianic secret about Jesus. He doesn't come as the, the widely expected, triumphant, conquering king who, who transforms world powers through, through his military strength or, or, or his political power. He came to be arrested. That wasn't a surprise to him. He came to be handed over to the authorities, to be beaten and mocked, to be spat on and, and to be killed. He came to then be uh, to, to raise to life, victorious over sin and death three days later. See, Jesus is not like any world power or political leader we've ever met. He's, he's the suffering servant written about in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is described like this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Does this sound like some victorious political leader in our world? Does it sound like some conquering king? Jesus had no majesty that we should look at him. He was a man of sorrows. He was despised, but, but he was also pierced for our sins. He, he, was, he was crushed for our brokenness and iniquities. That does not sound like a win in, our, in our, our mindset, does it? He bore the wrath of God's judgment, and, and, and that here, right there, is where his victory was won. Again, our, our world would count his death as a loss. They would say his army lost. But it's not a loss for our king because that's exactly what he came to do. He accomplishes what, he was, what he's been sent forth to accomplish. He was wounded, we are healed. Because of his victory, we are given peace. This is our king. This is the one we wave branches at. This is the one we cry out to saying, save us now, praising him and thanking him for his role as our king. This is is the king that no one would expect with our Hollywood mindsets. But he's the king that we need. In Isaiah 42, 
God says this. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Here's the thing, church. Our king is gentle. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You can't even talk in front of a, 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 a faintly burning wick without the, the, the flame kind of flickering out and, and even going out, right? But, but Jesus is so gentle that a faintly burning wick will not quench. Humble and lowly, he enters into Jerusalem in the manner of his character, right? I mean, I want you to picture this. The, the very Messiah that's described the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 is embodied before the people in Jerusalem as they stand outside and as he parades into the city. But they miss it. Because their expectation is on a king who's going to conquer their circumstances and make life easier for them. He's not the king they want, though. He's the king they need. See, Jesus is a paradoxical king. Unlike any character that, that Washington could empower or Hollywood could, could create, he's the humble Messiah who, who refused to take on the role of an earthly king. When, when everyone wanted to enthrone him and say, this is our king, let's gather the armies up and let's go fight those Romans, he's going to give us victory over them, he said, no, that's not who I am or what I came to do. Instead, he embraces the role of a servant. He says, I've come to suffer and die to win this victory for you. So what do you do with a king like this? Right? This isn't the king that our world expects, but what do we do with a king like this? He's not necessarily the king I, I want, but he's the king I need. He's not the kind of king I expect if I was writing the story, but he's the king I need. He's not the king I deserve, but he's the kind of king who loves me and wants me and is willing to travel to a foreign land and die in battle that he might win me back. So what do we do with a king like this? Well, maybe I, I would encourage us to start this morning by examining our hearts. Examine our hearts and decide if we even want a king in our lives. Church, Jesus doesn't force you to accept him as your savior. He doesn't force you to have a relationship with him. He invites you to, he wants you to, he desires to have you as, as part of his family and be with him, but he doesn't force us to. And, and in learning to accept him as our savior, I would ask you, do you want a savior with authority in your life? Hear me out for a second as you think about that. See, we, we vote for politicians, we love our pastors, we support our leaders, but what if we don't like what they decide? What, what, if, what, what if we don't really like how they're leading in certain situations? Do we still follow them or, or do we vote for someone else? 
Well, what I want us to consider then is not so much the inadequacy of human authority. That's not what I want to draw your attention to. What I want to draw your attention to and what I want you to consider is more so our relationship to authority in our lives. I don't get the impression that that we as a people, not just we here in the room, but human beings, I I don't get the impression that we like someone having authority over us. We don't like having to obey someone else or give them power over our lives. In fact, I would imagine that there are a number of us who actually fear, have fear around this idea when we think of various earthly leaders stepping into authority over this world. It scares us to think that they will have authority. They will have power to make decisions that will impact my life. I think if we really look down deep into our hearts, I think we'd have to confess that we we don't really want a king who has complete authority over us. Now, we could control it a little bit here and say, yeah, no, I want to give Jesus authority, but that's more like selective authority, right? It's kind of like selective hearing or, or whatnot. Like, there's moments where we, yeah, we can hear everything, and then we're like, oh, man, I didn't hear that. It was a, a moment where I chose not to hear that. There are moments in our lives where we, we say, yes, we, God, we praise you. You're a great king. We want to give you authority over our lives until we're asked to do something hard or difficult or something we don't want to do or something that doesn't seem enjoyable to us. See, what most of us are willing to submit to is authority that we can control. But all this amounts to is a king who does our bidding, isn't it? It's a king that we control. It's a king who we can create. It's a king who we can kind of tell, uh, that we can kind of decide when we want to follow and when we don't. If we don't like what he says, well, we just simply rationalize it away and don't, don't submit to him in the moment. And here's the thing. You know, that's the great thing about grace, right? <laughs> if we don't submit to him in this moment because we don't like what he's asking us to do, well, we also believe in grace, so God will forgive us, and he'll give us another chance to submit to his authority, right? Well, wrong, because that's not really submitting to him. That's not really grace. That's willfully choosing not to submit to our king in that moment And taking advantage of the fact that he's a kind and gracious and forgiving God. See, again, it's not the king I need. It's the king I want. What we want is is a king to conquer our difficult or painful circumstances. But that's not what we need. What we need is a king who conquers the evil in our hearts without destroying our bodies. And this is the king that Jesus offers to be for us. By suffering as a servant on our behalf, Jesus welcomes us into his kingdom. That's the thing about Jesus. He's he's a paradoxical king. He's the paradoxical king we need, a suffering servant king, a lowly, humble king. Now, if this idea of, of surrendering to his authority in your life, giving him full full sway over and influence over the decisions you make, the the life you lead, the circumstances you face. If that scares you a little bit, and it should to all of us to fully surrender to him in this place, in this way, every area of our lives, if that gives you fear, then I want to invite you as we close our time together to consider the character of the relationship he wants to have with us.
See, Jesus isn't the kind of king who, who makes oppressive demands and, and whose people are constantly in despair. He's not demanding or obligating that you, you bring him all, the, all, all that you belong or all that belongs to you. He's not, he's not making life hard and oppressive just because it makes his life more enjoyable. He's a king who traveled to a foreign land to win you back. He, he's a king who traveled in such a way to, to free his people who were enslaved to an evil dictator. And his invitation to us as his people is simple. Come to him as you are. Come to me. He says, let me, come to me and let me clean you up, make you whole. Uh, come to me and let me heal your heart, mind, and soul. But to do this, to accept his invitation... You need to surrender to his authority in your life and to trust him as savior and king. Last week when we dealt with the rich young ruler, Jesus tells him to go and sell all that he possesses and then come and follow me. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that we all have to go and sell all of our riches, but Jesus recognized that this man was not ready to submit to Jesus' authority. He had a different king in his life. His king were his possessions, his, his belongings, the wealth that he had built up in this life. But Jesus says to lay down your riches, lay down your idols, surrender to my authority in your life and trust me that I'm a good savior, a good king. Let's close with this invitation from King Jesus. Found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Our king says this to us. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. See, church, after this parade into Jerusalem, the secret is out. God's anointed Messiah, the King, is Jesus Christ. And he's come. He's come to rescue us. So hear his invitation, church. Come to him. Submit to his gracious and gentle authority in your life. I know it's scary. I know it's fearful to surrender every area of our lives. But trust that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we've, for a number of us, we've read this story before. We know the triumphal entry story. We know about the, the cult. We know about the palm branches. We know about the cloaks in the road. We know about Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We know all these things. And yet, Lord, it does not make the act of surrender any easier. Jesus is more than a savior. He is our king. And yet, Lord, I pray for the courage for all of us, each and every one of us here, to learn what it means to surrender, to submit to your authority, to trust in your reign as king over our lives, to trust that you are a good, gracious, and gentle God. 
One who we will know more and more as we learn to submit to more and more, to live lives of obedience to your ways. And so, Lord, give us courage to do that. Help us to trust in you more and to not let fear or, or the, the distasteful uh, taste in our mouth of, of human authority dissuade us from trusting in your authority. Lord, we want to follow you. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.